Hello, and thank you for joining me as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, found in the Gospel of Matthew. We come now to perhaps Jesus' most famous, most radical teaching in the sermon, Jesus' call to love our enemies. As we've discovered, this sermon is neither just an ideal to strive for, nor simply a mirror to reveal our need for a Savior. It is more. It is a description of the flourishing, kingdom-living follower of Jesus. It's a portrait of the devoted, mature, whole disciple. So as those who call ourselves disciples, we must ask ourselves, do we truly love our enemies? Have we made a habit of praying for those who persecute us? A major proponent of Jesus' teaching to love our enemies in the last century was Martin Luther King Jr. He regularly preached on this passage and advocated for its practice during the civil rights movement. One of his fellow civil rights activists who is still alive today was a man named Reverend John Perkins. Reverend Perkins has authored 17 books on faith and civil justice, often calling the American church to lead change in our nation. After being saved as a young man, Perkins started a church in Mendenhall, Mississippi. He established a Bible institute and a radio program, as well as several community organizations, a health clinic, youth program, tutoring center, and others. But when he began advocating for voter registration, he started to get pushback from the white community in Mendenhall. But it was when he led a boycott against police brutality that he was viciously attacked by the local authorities who wanted to teach him a lesson. His injuries were extensive. It took 18 months for him to recover, and two-thirds of his stomach had to be removed as a result. After recovering from the assault, Perkins did not stop his kingdom work. In fact, he went on to found a national organization for community development, and even went back to Mississippi to lead a racial reconciliation movement there. He developed a relationship with a previous member of the KKK, and they co-authored a book together called He's my brother. Formal racial foes offer strategy for reconciliation. Perkins has embodied the practice of loving your enemy throughout his life and career. He didn't just preach it, he lived it out. And I'm sure it was his faith that motivated him. The society we live in today would have us hate our enemies. Whether it's a sports team, a parenting style, or a political stance, we love to pick sides. In fact, one article titled 11 Silly Things the Internet Has Already Debated in 2019 found online arguments like the best way to draw an X and whether you should bite or lick your ice cream had become issues of national controversy. How often do we find ourselves caught up in the argument, viewing our side as right and those other guys wrong? For many of us, it's the opposite political party or the secular culture we find ourselves in. The Jewish people of Jesus' time would have felt a similar pull toward hatred, living under the oppressive rule of the Romans. Perhaps you don't have a personal enemy, but is there someone in your life who is difficult to love? Is there someone you feel growing resentment toward or you think you cannot forgive? Jesus' call to love and pray for those difficult people isn't easy, but it is the way to a flourishing life. Here's our text for today from Matthew 5, 43-48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So first question we ask is, did the law really say hate your enemy? In short, no. The Old Testament does not say love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Jesus was not quoting the law, but rather addressing the widely accepted misinterpretation of the law in the Jewish community at that time. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you can see how they got there. In order to enter the promised land, God called the Israelites to defeat their enemies, at times commanding them to exterminate whole people groups. In certain verses, God forbids intermarriage and even friendship with people from foreign nations. There are also particular psalms called imprecatory psalms, in which the author calls down curses on God's enemies, praying that God's wrath would be poured out upon them, often in savage detail. But these psalms were not meant to be about personal enemies, rather to draw us a picture of the pure, unblemished, untouchable holiness of God. Our worship of God and His holiness should cause us to detest all that is evil, but not the individual. The extermination of people groups in the Old Testament was about the abolishment of idol worship and the preservation of the Israelite nation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, The wars of Israel were the only holy wars in history, for they were the wars of God against the world of idols. For the Pharisees, it was a point of pride. They felt justified in their hatred of all outsiders. They were zealots who thought they were honoring God in their actions. But in doing so, they were ignoring the overall command of the law, which was to do good to their enemies. Many places in the Torah, God calls for his people to care for the alien, the sojourner, to leave the gleanings of the field for them. We see this in verses like Exodus 23, 4, which says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Or in Leviticus 19, where it says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. In Job, when he is pleading his case for righteousness to God, he says, Lord, show me if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exulted when evil overtook him. He's implying there that a righteous man would not rejoice when an enemy was overcome. And in Proverbs 25, which Paul later quotes in Romans, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. The true theme of the Old Testament in regards to enemies was that God's people did not seek their ill will, but their good. So the Pharisees got it wrong. But isn't it also our natural sinful tendency to love those who love us and hate those who hate us? And yet Jesus says, love is the way to prosper, not flounder in the face of enemy persecution. Like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, the Sermon on the Mount is showing us how to live life best, how to flourish in this broken world. 
Jesus' call to love our enemies is not only what is righteous, not only what glorifies God, it is both of those things, but also what is best for our enemy and for our own good. The proverb I quoted from earlier is all about how to deal wisely with others. It deals with finding favor with rulers, how to settle arguments with a neighbor, and why to be careful with our words. There is something about returning evil for evil that can escalate a situation. If you return good for evil, however, it may cause the other person to see their actions in a new light. It's a staple of parenting I often use myself. When one of my children is singing loudly or being a copycat to annoy their brother or sister, they're trying to get a reaction, right? If the other one retaliates, they'll continue this exchange until someone explodes and tears and hurt feelings follow. A sibling's kind word or gesture of forgiveness just might change the course of the whole argument. Jesus, like Proverbs, is showing us the wise way of treating our enemies. So another reason Jesus tells his disciples to love their enemies, it says, so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Here, Jesus invokes their identity as children of God. And as his children, we're called to emulate him like a good father. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not so much telling his disciples what they should do, but who they should be. In Ephesians, Paul likewise tells us to be imitators of God. And what kind of love does the Father have? It's the kind of love we see described in 1 Corinthians 13. Patient, kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable, resentful, or rejoices at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God's love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the perfect love of God. God's perfect love does not negate his perfect justice, and his wrath cannot allow evil to go unpunished. But he alone is judge, not us. Isn't that so often what we do when we allow hate to fester in our minds? We sit in the place of judgment, deeming who is righteous, deserving of our love, and who is not. But God's love shows grace to all people. The passage says next, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the, on the unjust. This has been called by theologians God's common grace. The world is full of God's good gifts, and believers and non-believers enjoy them. Why? Because God sees everyone's need. He is full of compassion. And our compassion for people, for our enemies, will grow when we recognize their need too. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Our treatment of others must never depend upon what they are or upon what they do to us. It must be entirely controlled and governed by our view of them and of their condition. Every person is God's creation made in his image. We are all born into this broken world in desperate need of a savior. Do you see yourself that way? Do you recognize your own condition? I know for me, I am often forgetful of just how sinful I really am. And when I forget that, it's all too easy to magnify the faults of others. Remember the words of Paul in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, 
at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies of God when he saved us. Colossians 1.21 says it also, once we were alienated from God and were enemies in our minds. If you've experienced the gospel in a real way, you have come face to face with your depravity, the depth of your sin and real need for a savior. Have you? Have you come to see how holy and perfect God is? How our sin alienated us from him, making us enemies of God? Tim Keller, in a sermon on this very teaching, went so far as to say, if you don't see that you are an enemy of God in your sin, you aren't a true Christian. Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father. He stood in our place. He became an enemy of the world, enduring persecution, abuse, even death on a cross. Punishment he did not deserve. The punishment we deserve. I love the picture we get in the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, where it says, the Father turns his face away. We get a glimpse into the pain Jesus the Son and God the Father felt in that moment. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make our wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. His wounds bring us to glory. We were the wretch, now a treasure. How deep the Father's love for us. It's a love that leaves the 99 to look for the one. It's a love that rejoices when the rebellious son returns. It was for this love that Jesus willingly laid down his life so that his enemies might be saved. How often do we forget the height, the width, the depth of his love for us? I have seen in my own life, when I have a fuller understanding of his love, I have a fuller capacity to love others. I've noticed that to the extent I'm receiving God's grace for myself is the extent I'm giving it to others. If I'm not soaking in God's grace, relying upon it, remembering that my righteousness is a gift, I cannot forgive my own shortcomings. And if I cannot forgive my own shortcomings, I certainly cannot forgive someone else's. But even when we are receiving God's grace, there can be a gap between our receiving His grace and extending it to others, especially when they have wronged us or mistreated us in some way. And in that gap where we feel we cannot love someone, we can find prayer. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. Prayer is the key to loving our enemies. Jesus demonstrated this on the cross as he was being mistreated and wrongly punished. As he was being killed, Jesus called out to the Father to forgive the very people who put him there. The imperfect tense used in the original text actually implies he didn't just pray once, but kept on praying for those enemies. 
in that moment of suffering, excruciating pain and terrible injustice, how natural would it have been for him to blame the Pharisees, to blame the crowd or the Roman soldiers, to feel overwhelming hatred for the enemy. But instead, Jesus spends his last moments praying for them. He forgives them, saying they do not know what they are doing. Jesus was able to do this because he knew who is the true enemy. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The only true enemy now is the enemy of the world, the prince of lies, Satan. That enemy would love nothing else than for us to fight and hate, for bitterness to build up in our hearts like decay, pushing us away from others and from God. Instead of view viewing people as opponents, as me versus them, it's us together versus the devil. And our best defense against Satan and his schemes is prayer. So how can we pray for our enemies? First, by praying for our own hearts. I can ask for God to help me forgive them. I can ask him to soften my heart toward that person or that group of people. I can ask that he would enable me to show love toward them even when I don't feel it. Second, I can pray for their needs. I can pray for their inner healing. I can pray for their salvation if they don't know Jesus. I can pray that their heart would change toward me. I can pray for them to experience real peace, joy, and love. If the wound from that person has been severe, it might be difficult to pray. You could start by asking for, for justice to be served. For God is just, and He will ultimately avenge all wrongdoing. Begin by simply surrendering their judgment to God. It's already His, but by acknowledging and surrendering it to Him, we start to remove that burden from our own shoulders. When I was in my 20s, I had a difficult person in my life and I felt they had done something to me that I couldn't forgive. I harbored resentment against her and talked behind her back to other people. But one summer, we had our regional church conference and Ian preached about forgiveness. It convicted me and I began to pray for this person regularly. As I began to pray for her, God did a great work in my heart. He began to open my eyes to see that her actions came from a place of insecurity and fear. God helped me to see the pain she was coping with, the trauma she had endured growing up. This gave me empathy for her, and I began to extend grace to her. As my prayers continued, God showed me some common ground between us, and on that common ground, we connected and even developed a friendship. The change in me was supernatural. I could not have brought it about on my own. And God changed her heart as well. Prayer is powerful. Even if it's hard at first, begin to pray. Little by little, it will get easier. Start today. You might be amazed at what God can do. For some of you, God has put on your heart a particular person right now. Why don't you commit a time every day or once a week to start praying for them. Share this commitment with someone you trust so they can help you stay accountable. Carrying hatred or resentment is not good for us. Over time, it can even cause us real physical pain. Jesus knew this. 
It's why he called his disciples to love instead of to hate. Choosing love allows us to live free of burden, to truly flourish. This passage ends with an incredibly challenging statement. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In his commentary, John Pennington argues that a better translation for the Greek word telulos found there would be whole. The idea is not perfection, but wholehearted devotion to God. Jesus purposely does not use the word holy as it says in the law, be holy as I am holy. No, for the Pharisees, the word holy had been tainted, twisted into outward righteousness, good behavior, obeying the law. Jesus is correcting their perspective with a call to wholeness. It's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, a greater or true righteousness. But as Oswald Chambers wrote, the Sermon on the Mount is not an ideal. It is a statement of what will happen in me when Jesus Christ has altered my disposition and put in a disposition like his own. If you are in Christ, he is already at work in you, growing and maturing you into that whole disciple he described through the Holy Spirit. And if you long to see that change in yourself, to know God's love and be changed by it, I encourage you to invite Jesus into your life today. In an interview with Philip Yancey, published in his book, Soul Survivors, Reverend John Perkins said this, talking about his attack and recovery. That time was without a doubt my deepest crisis of faith. It was time for me to decide if I really did believe what I had so often professed, that only in the love of Christ, not in power of violence, is there any hope for me or the world. I began to see how hate could destroy me. In the end, I had to agree with Dr. King that God wanted us to return good for evil. Love your enemy, Jesus said, and I determined to do it. It's a profound and mysterious truth, Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see it in my lifetime, but I know it's true, because on that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true to me. Loving our enemies is backwards in the eyes of the world. It doesn't make sense, and it doesn't come naturally to us. But as we know more of the love of our Father, as we pursue Him with whole hearts, we receive more of His grace. As we rely on His Spirit within us, we'll become more like Him, extending that love He has shown so greatly to us. And just imagine how that kind of love could change our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and beyond. Go in grace today.